gosh, you guys have such a warm and wonderful vibe going on here. For real. Thank you for being so hospitable and so welcoming to Sierra and I. Our baby is thriving in your kid's place back there. She hasn't made a sound. If she decides to pipe up, we'll probably hear her in here. And I'll just claim it and pretend that, not pretend that she's not mine. Um, so I'm just super thankful to be here, and um, I would just like to have a, a conversation this morning with all of you about the work that Rescue Freedom is doing to set people free all over the world and the gospel-fueled nature of that work. Um, I realize that we don't know each other all that well yet, and so for me to come and show up and talk about really hard stuff and the systemic sexual brokenness that exists on our planet and how pornography fuels demand, it's like... Who watches Saturday Night Live? Anybody still watch Saturday Night Live? Do you remember Debbie Downer? Okay, so I have to be super careful that I don't turn into Debbie Downer, right? So we always focus on the incredibly hopeful nature of the work that we're doing so that we do not get overwhelmed with how great the need is. So I'm just beginning to establish some credibility with you, but just want to invite you to sit in the discomfort as we talk about how great some of the need is. If it is not kingdom people who serve and invest in the work of God's kingdom, nobody else is going to do it. And so anytime I get the invitation and that leadership is on board and introducing their people to the work of Rescue Freedom, it gives me tremendous hope and tremendous encouragement because it's clear that God is still stirring the hearts of his people for the king and for his kingdom. So thanks so much for having me. Um, if you would have told me 10 years ago that I would be here in this warm and cozy church family environment talking about systemic sexual brokenness, I would have told you that you were crazy. But God has a sense of humor, and his ways are not our ways. And he does not call people who are equipped, but he equips people that are called. And so I have found myself on this mysterious and beautiful and burdensome journey of being an abolitionist for some years now. My wife has been incredibly gracious and incredibly forgiving and supportive and helpful because it's not easy work that we are doing. And for me, the reason that I'm so invested in this work and that my life is all about it is because my heart breaks for those women and children who are trapped in sexual slavery today. And I believe that this work is incredibly close to the very heart of God when we look at who he is and what he does and what he is like throughout the whole course of Scripture, he is about setting captives free. And this term abolitionist typically gets our thinking about the expressions of slavery in the Civil War era, but the abolitionist word is actually a biblical term, and if we look back into the Old Testament, it is easy to infer biblically, hold me accountable, that Moses was actually an abolitionist himself, that he was an active agent in setting slaves free, and that God endorsed and ordained and anointed him to be part of that work. And when we look at Galatians 5.1, in fact, we see that it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. And so as freed people, we must be about the business of setting others free. So the work of rescue freedom is a gospel-fueled endeavor indeed. 
And it is a deep invitation and call for God's people to be about the business of seeing to it that people that are freed from spiritual bondage and sin and even sexual slavery as, as well. And that's good news because the need is tremendous. It's tremendous. Who, who would be willing, Sierra, you're not allowed, to take a guess at how many people are in slavery today? So this is labor trafficking and sex trafficking both, but how many people would you guess are enslaved in the world today? I'm totally comfortable with awkward silences, so I can hang. I should have brought little Rolos or something. Just take a guess. A million. Whew, that's a big number. Whew, what was that? Eight million. Eight million. Mm. Ten? All right. Some big numbers. Any other guesses? A billion. Who? Lord of mercy. You want to click it for me? 45.8 million people are trapped in slavery like right now today. 45.8 million. And the International Labor Organization, whose job it is to get the best working estimates that we can, have increased this estimation of those that are living in sexual slavery significantly. And the working estimate for all folks in the abolitionist movement that we feel comfortable with because of the new data that's emerged is closer to 25 million. So that is a boatload of folks. That's a boatload of folks. Um, and there are many, many reasons for this number to have manifested itself in such a significant way. A lot of different reasons. And it's important to note that human trafficking, that, which is this kind of umbrella term, really means that through force, fraud, or coercion, someone is having to do something they don't want to do for the commercial or financial gain of another. So labor trafficking, which Rescue Freedom does care about, but we focus very squarely on sex trafficking and sexual slavery. So labor trafficking, we're talking about very young children in mines or on fishing boats or in factories working ridiculously long hours in almost inhumane conditions to feed consumerism in more developed parts of the country, including the states. So be careful about what you buy and who you buy it from. So that number is very large. What we are seeing as an organization is that the lines between labor trafficking and sex trafficking are blurring really significantly. So in addition to that child kind of labor, we also see domestic servitude. And in many of those cases, because those kids are so vulnerable, they are experiencing commercial sexual exploitation as well. So we have the privilege of caring for those who have been exploited in labor trafficking, but our focus squarely is on sexual slavery. So thinking about these 20 million women and children who are trapped in slavery right now, what would you guys think are some of the key reasons that create the kind of vulnerability that have these young people end up where they're at? What Poverty, absolutely number one, yeah. And we're not talking about um, struggling to make the bills, we're talking about extreme poverty. Uh, many of the young women and girls that we've had the privilege of serving come from families from which were they not exploited and creating some measure of revenue, their families simply would not survive. 
Um, poverty is a big one, and it's typically throughout every country that we're working in, in one expression or another. So poverty is key. What else? Lack of family, yeah, for sure. Relationally isolated, no sense of community. Um, and even at times, if there is family that's kind of physically present, um, what we see very frequently kind of marry into the issue of poverty is what we call parental complicity. And this is a spot where we as folks who enjoy some significant measure of privilege when we look at our station kind of worldwide have to try and suspend judgment because in my mind as a dad, I have four kids. There is no circumstance anywhere, anytime, don't care how poor that I would ever be complicit in having one of my children experience sexual exploitation so that I could get money. But... There are situations where the poverty is so significant, when economic viability is so scant and desperation is so paramount, and culturally and even sometimes theologically, parents are complicit in having their kids be involved in commercial sexual exploitation. Here's one example. We see this a lot in Thailand, which is one of the places where rescue freedom is fighting slavery. Uh, we met a young girl. She was the oldest of four. Uh, she lived in an outlier rice village, and her parents were chronically, chronically poor. Her youngest sibling was just three or four, and he was chronically ill, and they could not afford medication. So the only option that they had was for the eldest girl, who they culturally and theologically looked to be a bit of a breadwinner when their parents are not able to earn, and she went to Bangkok to work in the bars there. After the first night of uh, being sold to buyers, she was absolutely traumatized, and she looked at herself in the mirror, and she said, I can't do this, I can't do this, I can't do this. And she told us that she had to turn off her heart and turn on her head and say, I have to do this, I have to do this, I have to do this. She was in the bars being exploited for two years before she was rescued and recovered by a Rescue Freedom local partner. And the amount of money that she was sending home to her family so their youngest could survive and so the rest of the family could survive was like 30 bucks American. So for us... <laughs> We have to remove some of those barriers. So our local partners in Thailand, for example, anytime we have the thrilling privilege of caring for a young woman that's been rescued from the bars, we provide an allowance that empowers them to send that money home to their parents because we don't want that ever to be a reason that they can access, can't access services. Does that make sense? So poverty and parental complicity um, are, are really, really big ones. Any other things come to mind when you think about the kind of cultural drivers that create vulnerability for all these women and kids that are trapped right now. Say more about that. Yeah, hundred um, percent. Sexism, um, even patriarchy. Uh, just male-dominated perspective on how life works and should work is, is a big one. Um, and in India in particular, we, we see a lot of that. Um, 
we see uncles and sometimes dads and sometimes grandfathers simply sell their girls into slavery because they have no value for the family and no relational value, which is terrifying and horrifying, but it happens a lot. But there's one um, tribe that we've learned about that like for 500 years, part of their cultural tradition is to sell their oldest daughter into slavery just because that's the way that life works. So patriarchy is, is a really, really big one and sexism is a really, really big one. Um, any others? Yeah. Yeah, so that's, that's a big one. Um, so the reality is um, that, you know, this, this big 20, 25 million number is an important number because it helps us to kind of hold the weight of how much work that we have to do as God's people. Um, but I'm always careful about introducing that giant number because we can lose the sight of the one, right? And every single one in that giant number has 10 fingers and 10 toes and a first name and a middle name, and they know how to whisper and laugh and shout and smile, and none of them at any time woke up one morning and said, hey, I think it sounds like a great idea to get involved in sexual slavery. It just doesn't happen that way. And at its root, at the very, very bottom of all of the sexual slavery we see all over the world, at the very, very bottom are the sexually broken hearts of men that have somehow gotten okay with buying another woman or child to gratify their own needs. And we call that sexual entitlement. And pornography is a huge driver of that. We're going to talk a little bit more about that. Um, okay, so then how many, who wants to guess how many Victims of sexual slavery are there here in the United States? Sierra, you're still out of the game here, honey. I'm sorry. 100,000. Pretty close. Yeah, they estimate between 250 and 300,000. And only about 10% of those are women and children that have been trafficked from other countries to be exploited here in the States. So who wants to venture a guess at how many women and children are sold for sex every night in King County? Very close. Yeah, between 1,000 and 1,300 every night right here in King County. King County, Kirkland, Woodenville, Bellevue, Seattle, South Seattle. Most of them are sold online, um, and y'all know uh, Westlake Center where they put up the big carousel every year? So um, our friends at the Seattle Police Department have informed us that within 72 hours of leaving home, if you're a homeless or street-involved female, you are approached by a trafficker within 72 hours. So sometimes when we're thinking about trafficking abroad and we're thinking about parental complicity and we're thinking about extreme poverty and we're thinking about forced abduction, which is another reality, especially in Eastern Europe where we see organized crime being very much involved in this. In the States, it looks a lot different. In the States, we're talking about women and girls who've experienced pretty chronic sexual abuse either in their family of origin or in the foster care system. And when we think about homeless and street-involved young people, it's really, really important for us to remember that 99 times out of 100, these young people are not running to something, they are running from something. 
These aren't rule breakers necessarily. These are young people who are experiencing consolidated trauma in a home environment that has become so unsafe that they cognitively choose the dangers of the street over the dangers that they are experiencing at home. Okay? And here in the states, typically, and here in King County, for sure, the process looks very, very different. And so most traffickers know the tragic story of heartbreak and despondency and lack of family and lack of dads and lack of feeling value and lack of feeling worth. And they prey upon those vulnerabilities in ways that are creative and compelling. In our home, we have three daughters and one son, and we spend ourselves the best that we can to ensure that our kids feel deeply loved and deeply known and deeply valued. And so when we try to capture those moments as parents that we think are really meaningful and put our hands on the faces of our beautiful children and say, I love you, baby. And our kids are like, I know, Dad. <laughs> Something deep and good and formative is happening in the lives of our children because they are being anchored in how unconditionally loved they are. So when you parallel that, with the experience of the most vulnerable young women that we have out there who have never been told that they're beautiful, never been told that they're valuable. In fact, the world has tried for years to convince them that they are not worth anything. And you have a charismatic and handsome and focused young man who tells them all the things that they long to hear and buys them all of the things that they have never had before, getting your hair done, meal out, safe hotel, convinces them that they're in love with them, absolutely, and because of all the sexual abuse they've already endured, sells them a story about just making a little money and we'll get married and we'll buy a home and it's going to be this wonderful dream. To their itching, itching and desolate ears, it might sound a little something like love. Do you know what I mean? So here in the States, it is all about coercion. And when young women recognize that perhaps this boyfriend who loves them wants them to do things that they don't want to do, that's typically when traffickers will flip the switch and work to isolate them and deploy violence to keep them in line to do what they're doing. So that's what it looks like here. And we brought up the point earlier that very much so we can click to the next. This is um, unpleasant to talk about, but super important to know um, that Pornography is a key driver for men who are inclined or developing an inclination to buy sex from another human being. Um, and I know, and I want to be super sensitive, that pornography is so pervasive, it's now become uncommon for just, just as people to have not had pornography impact us or someone we love very much in a negative way. So I want to be super sensitive as I share these stats because I know that this can be something that's um, touched our lives in a way that we wish that it wouldn't have. But for kingdom people and for people that are interested in setting other people free, we have to know where the real bondage exists, and this is a big one. So um, Pornhub is, is one of about eight sites that are the largest on the planet that steward um, the kind of content that we're talking about. And listen to this. I know we've got some stats up there that are um, pretty significant, and I'm just going to share a couple more. Um, in 2016, this is the freshest data that we have available, um, people watched a total of 4.6 billion hours of pornographic content just on this one site. That's 
524 years worth, or if you will, 17,000 complete lifetimes. And when I think about living for the king, and when I think about living for the kingdom, and I think that 17,000 complete lifetimes have been removed from his plan and his missional cause for the sake of engaging with this content, something freaks me out, right? Like, what would it mean to re reclaim and retrieve and redeem that time and those lives for the purposes of the kingdom? In that same year, and this is just nutty um, and fascinating in a terrible way, but in 2016, there was enough pornographic data downloaded from this one site to fill to capacity every single iPhone in use on the planet. And there were more votes cast for favorite video on this site than there were in the U.S. presidential election, which is just insane. So here's the thing. And you touched on it. You actually hit the nail on the head. What we have learned, um, and this is like, everybody take a deep breath. Like, okay, Debbie Downer, I'm sorry, you guys. I want you to make really fun plans for after this, okay? We're going to get to the hope stuff for sure, but I just want you to carry the weight of this need with me, right? Because it's super, super important. So what we have figured out now clinically is that pornography is not just a bad thing that lustful guys do and shouldn't be doing, right? That's part of it. But more so, We have found that under the hood, the reason that men and young men gravitate towards this kind of content because of issues of anger and insecurity and fear and worry and anxiety. And we as men, I think everyone would attest, do not like to talk about those things. In fact, we would love to present to the world all day, every day, that we have our ish dialed in, that we are good to go, that we have it together, that we do not need help, that we do not need accountability. We don't even really need deep friendships because we're men. And those are the kinds of things that create a very privatized and desperate bondage to this stuff. Okay? So, what we have now learned neurologically is that prolonged exposure to pornography affects the brain in the same way that drugs and alcohol do. It means that two things are happening. One, becomes increasingly difficult to quit, and two, requires exposure to increasingly deviant content to achieve the physiological hits that we're accustomed to achieving. It's probably the most diplomatic way that I can say that. It's sort of like if I began um, indulging my senses with alcohol and I kind of came to the end of that and I wasn't really feeling it and so I started smoking a little pot as well and okay, that combo seems to be working for me and when I come to the end of that, then oh, okay, maybe a little cocaine I'll introduce to my life, right? It's the same kind of thing. And we've had the privilege of learning from sex buyers over the years and one of them said to me very plainly and the Lord has done extraordinary redemptive work in his life. He simply said, Edward, With all of the pornography that I was looking at and the kind of pornography that I was looking at, buying sex for the first time just wasn't that big of a deal. And that really iced it for me. And that narrative has now been coupled with this clinical research, and we call it the porn progression, which is simply put, a physiological deterioration into increasing unhealthy sexual behavior that is fueling the demand for commercial sex all over the world. Okay, so all that said, when we tie it together, um, the average age of exposure to pornography in our country right now is 11. 
So knowing what we know about that exposure rate and knowing what we know about the porn progression, there's like a tidal wave of sexual brokenness that's waiting to crash on our culture if we don't stand up and get involved in the fight, right? So we can click it. So we get involved in the fight. And we say this at Rescue Freedom all the time, and I think my wife would attest, although some days are better than others. It is not the injustice that drives us. It is the magnitude of hope. And if I lived into all of the desperation that we were talking about, I would be a miserable wretch of a man all the time. And I am sometimes, and I'm working on that as best I can, because this work is super hard, and it can be overwhelming. But rescue freedom has answered God's call to set the captives free. And we exist to empower the rescue and restoration of women and children trapped in slavery and to end exploitation before it ever even begins. And through our local partners that we have all over the world, we are rescuing and restoring women and kids who are suffering. And we know that because of your help, we are stopping the cycle of exploitation and we're moving closer to creating freedom for everybody. And we believe because we know that this is God's plan, that every woman and man and child should be free, and so we fight every day. We fight against injustice every day, and we amplify the voices of those stories that need to be told. And we love telling these stories, and we get to tell more and more stories like this when we're able to align ourselves with folks like you who join the fight. So here's how we do it. We rescue women and children from a life of sexual slavery through outreach, and we do outreach in red light districts all over the world, in bars and in brothels, and increasingly online here in the States. We provide prevention for those very, very at-risk families by introducing measures of economic viability, whether it's education or vocational training or things of that nature, to set them on a different path so that they are not rendered so vulnerable that they need to experience exploitation. And our local partners are a really big deal. And these are folks that are on the ground that know the community and know the context and know how to fight slavery best. And we come along and empower their work as best we can to elevate it to the next level. And click to the next one. So sexual slavery um, is not just a problem for us to solve. Fighting sexual slavery is a kingdom movement that creates freedom and glorifies God in staggering ways and it puts the community on notice because if folks that have experienced such bondage can experience gospel-fueled freedom, the community has no other option than to say, wow, something magnificent is happening there. So the work of ending slavery becomes a witness to the community that glorifies God and gives his people joy when they are in the fight. And Jesus talks about this, and this is king and kingdom stuff. And when we remember in Luke chapter 4, uh, 14 through 19, I'll read it. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him had spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth where he'd been brought up and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue as was his custom and he stood up to read and the roll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him and unrolling it he found the place where it is written, the spirit of the Lord is on me 
because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind and to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Suffice it to say that setting captives free was on Jesus' mind when he preached and taught people how to be about his business. Freedom is a core part of the mission of Jesus for all mankind. It is a core part of the character of our king and a key distinctive of his kingdom. And so it's not so much a question about how can we get in, how can we, how might we get involved in setting people free, but as freed people, how can we not be about the business of setting others free? We are by definition, as believers, trusting and treasuring Jesus, by definition, we are a rescued people. And because we have been rescued and grafted into God's family and into healing and into wholeness, we should be like cannonballed out into participating in the literal and spiritual freedom of others. And that's what true freedom is all about. Um, about a year ago, um, our chief operating officer and I um, traveled to Lucknow, India uh, to visit with an NGO that was fighting slavery in that community, and they had heard about what Rescue Freedom was doing, and they let us know that they needed some help. So we wanted to visit with them. Um, and knowing what I knew, this was, this was pretty early um, in, in my time there at Rescue Freedom, and Knowing what I know about the kind of trauma that survivors endure in the hands of traffickers and buyers, like going to this home to visit and meet the girls, um, there was part of me that, that didn't want to go. I was super nervous. I was super hesitant and a little bit fearful. Um, and at this particular home, um, there's this giant blue iron door. Um, and I remember standing there with Dell prepare myself like and as the door kind of rolled slowly open we were met by six survivors who were singing and dancing and gave us the east indian version of like the hawaiian lay and they blessed us and they welcomed us into this place where hope and restoration were like palpable and i was like wide-eyed and tear-filled and I looked at Dell like dude this is not what I was expecting like I expected these girls to be sad and sullen and wearing trauma like on their person and Dell looked back at me like man yeah this is what transformation can really look like and it was it was an awesome moment and so uh, we learned more about them this is an example of how rescue freedom rolls and so we learned more about them and we recognized that more than just a little help like these guys were close um, to if their needs weren't addressed and help wasn't given um, they might not be able to continue doing what they were doing uh, we recognized um, that if they didn't get some help, the hundreds of girls outside that big blue iron door who were still enslaved and still experiencing abuse might not ever experience freedom. And we also knew that if they did have help, their impact could like explode and more and more women and girls would be dancing and singing as a result. So we came back to the States 
And Dell, our COO, kind of did his thing and did his due diligence and kind of checked into their staff a little more, their finances a little more. They formally applied to become a Rescue Freedom partner. They met all the criteria. And Nyasha, which means bright hope in Hindi, has been a Rescue Freedom partner ever since. So we invited them into the Rescue Freedom family with clinical training to address trauma, strategy for how to get to the next level, coaching, encouragement, prayer, and we bumped up our financial resources by 75%. That's what Rescue Freedom does. So fast forward to just this last April, it was about a year later, um, Dell and I returned and brought some key supporters with us. And when we showed up um, at Nyasha and the big blue iron door rolled slowly back and we walked in and this time there were 24 survivors waiting there singing and dancing with the East Indian Hindi lay and it was flipping beautiful. So by becoming a Rescue Freedom partner, Nyasha was able to quadruple their impact and the rescue and restoration that they were doing is now happening in the lives of 18 more girls. And that's the play that we want to run around the world over and over and over. So the numbers and the scaling up and the increase is super, super important because we remain compelled by the many all over the world that are still trapped in slavery, but we're also committed to the one. And so I will tell you the story um, that among this new group of survivors that we happened to meet at Nyasha, there was one whose name we'll call Anaya. Um, and she had been very recently rescued um, in a raid that Nyasha did in partnership with local law enforcement there in Lucknow, and she was brought to the safe home. Um, she had been sold by her family, um, and Anaya was actually rescued from one of the most um, traumatizing and kind of terrifying expressions of slavery that we know about. Um, she was actually physically chained in a room that she was unable to leave from while the exploitation that she endured happened day after day. Um, when she got to our safe home, um, initially um, she couldn't speak. She would not eat. Um, she wouldn't look our staff or other girls in the eye at all. Um, and she actually even refused medical care at the beginning, which she was desperately in need of. Slowly, over time, her, her eyes began to lift a bit. Um, she would typically spend most of her time just rocking back and forth in the corner of one of the rooms there at Nyasha, but slowly, she began to whisper a tiny bit and talk a tiny bit and engage with staff a, a, a tiny bit, started to participate in counseling little by little, and then she began to talk and then she began to laugh, and then she began to build relationships with the other girls and staff in a meaningful way. And then she started making meals for others, and then she started taking care of other girls as they would arrive, and then we began to understand that a miraculous and magnificent transformation was happening in her life. She was becoming a survivor leader among other girls. And right now, like today, like right now, She's serving as a house mom at Nyasha. Now, I can't think of any other 
analogy that does justice to transformation like that. That's like light and dark, hope and despair, life and death, Jesus back from the grave, resurrection type stuff. And if the gospel can work there for the king and his kingdom, it can work anywhere. We love that story. And she is among the most courageous and thriving survivors that we have ever met. Um, we click to the next. Um, so there are a lot of exciting thing, things to share. This is, the up, this is the up part. Here's all the good news. Are you ready for some good news? So in 2017, how am I doing on time, Jacob? Okay. Um, in 2017, um, we had 761 revenues. In 2018, just in the first quarter of the year, we have had 497 rescues and 291 of them were children. And when we say this word rescue, it's super important for us to understand what that means. This means that light has shone into the darkest of places. This means that a captive has been pulled from a brothel or a bar or from relational bondage to a trafficker and is no longer enslaved, no longer entrapped, no longer experiencing abuse. It means that the trajectory of their life has been radically changed forever. And that many rescues in the first quarter, you guys, we're averaging five rescues per day right now, which is exhilarating and so exciting. We have 1,066 women in full-time restorative care. We're fighting slavery in 14 countries with 20 local partners with 100 different programs. We're about to open a new safe home in Bulgaria. We're building a new drop-in center in Bogota, Colombia. And we just completed our first local partner gathering in Thailand where 45 leaders from our local partner family came for a time of renewal and connecting. And it was a transformational turn in the fight to end slavery all over the world. So there is tremendous progress being made. So I just have a couple of questions for you that you don't need to answer out loud. But I would simply ask, how is Jesus leading you to bring hope and freedom to those who are trapped in physical and spiritual bondage? What is Jesus stirring up in you that he's inviting you to not ignore, but to act on this morning and this week and this month and perhaps for the rest of your lives? What invitation is Jesus extending to you to more fully experience his love as I sacrificially serve others? So chew on those. Practically, there's some great ways to get involved with Rescue Freedom, and it's a privilege to share with them with you just super briefly. Um, we have these marching orders being clicked to the next um, ending slavery one at a time. Um, we have seen this unbelievable surge in folks doing what they love to fight what they hate. So the aim is to figure out something that you love doing and position it as a fundraiser for folks in your community to raise funds and awareness to fight slavery. We've seen people do putt-putt golf tournaments. We've seen people come over for dinners and wine tasting. We've seen all sorts of stuff. I 
lost it a little bit and decided that I was going to climb Mount Hood at the end of July to try to raise funds for Rescue Freedom. I don't know if I love climbing mountains, but hiking up 228 in my sneakers, it's beginning to communicate to me that I might not love it, but I'm doing it anyway because I want to fight what I hate, right? So we call this community our freedom fighters, and there are all sorts of ways to raise funds and awareness. We have easy resources available. If you guys feel stirred to do that, we can totally make it happen. And then click to the next. Um, we have a unique group um, called Team Freedom, and this is a monthly membership fro program for folks that are all in. Folks who have caught the vision for ending slavery with Rescue Freedom and are giving monthly. And whether it's 15 or 150, our members of Team Freedom are making a significant impact month after month after month. And as an NGO, this is a huge deal. Reminds us that we are not alone. It reminds us that there are others and that we are stronger together. So consider this one as well. And I got all the sign-up stuff and all the swag in the back there. Um, and this one's easy. Click to the next, Jacob. Just give us a like on Facebook or follow us on Instagram. We've done a, um, a really good job of making our brand relevant and compelling and hope-filled. And the reality is, you guys, I'm probably not going to have the privilege of sharing interpersonally with all of the folks in your community. But we want you to feel empowered, just even on social media, to be able to share messaging of hope and messaging of impact and invitations for others to get involved in ways that they see fit. So would love it if you gave us a like and followed us on Instagram um, this morning. Um, and then lastly, um, and this is on Jeremy's radar as well, but we have our big game in September. It's an intentional fundraiser for us. It's going to be on the 29th of September, and it's going to be awesome. So I would invite all of you to come and join us at that. Um, lastly, we click to the last slide. Um, and sometimes this feels like a throwaway, and it's absolutely not a throwaway. I want to exhort you to pray. We have been in places where it would appear that principalities and powers are absolutely holding sway, that the volume and industrious nature of bondage is so great that we can feel helpless, but we know that God has sovereignly deemed it fit to answer our prayers, and so pray. Pray for freedom, true freedom, to occur in the lives of those that we are serving and those that we have not yet served. Pray freedom for men who are enslaved to unhealthy sexual lifestyles and that the, the demand would end. And pray that as God's people, we can raise up a generation of children who grow up opposed to exploitation, opposed to slavery, and pray that we can actually end slavery in our lifetime. Thank you for letting me come and thank you for welcoming Sierra and I into your family this morning. Um, I'm going to close in prayer, and then I'm going to take off, and we'll do whatever we do next. Is that all right? Jesus, thank you so much um, for the good news of your gospel. God, thank you that you sent Jesus to set us free from spiritual bondage. Lord, thank you that you have breathed the Holy Spirit into the life and hearts of your people so that we can be about the business of setting others free. Lord, I pray that you would activate us this morning. 
Lord, that you would make it clear what steps of faith, if any, we are to take this morning. Lord, whether it's with Rescue Freedom, Lord, whether it's with others in our family or at work, Lord, make it clear what you would have us do. Lord, help us to align our hearts and our heads to being about a life that is for our King and for your kingdom. God, I pray that you would help us to be a people that understand um, how important it is for us to take risks for you, to sacrificially serve you, to give you glory and to bring us joy. Lord, I pray a, a, a lightning and a refreshing, Lord, as we move out of talking about really hard stuff um, to a time of rejoicing in the good news that you are all loving, all powerful, and all about drawing your people closer to you. So Lord, help us to respond well trusting and treasuring you as our Savior and our Rescuer and our King. And it's in your mighty name that God's people all said, Amen.